I was always in the perspective that, you know, this would end up being part of Bitcoin, that Bitcoin, like any software project, was meant to grow and evolve. I remember a conversation I had very early, again, 2011. I was in visiting London. I had a few hours to kill. I go into a hackerspace. I meet this guy and, you know, he starts talking to me about Bitcoin. I was like, oh, cool. I'm interested in Bitcoin too. And I say, well, what, you know, what about the algorithm? Like, surely something better can come along. And he says, well, yes, but Bitcoin is not an algorithm. It's not a piece of code. Bitcoin is a ledger. It's a set of people that agree that these are the entries in a ledger. And if something better can come along, you can keep the ledger and change the underlying algorithm. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, thank God that that's great. That's, that's what I needed to hear. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, joined as I often am by my colleague and collaborator, Ryan Donovan. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Ben. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited. I like to talk about blockchain technology. (laughs) You like to shout at the cloud. You're the angry old man in this room, but that's okay. (laughs) You'll get your chance. I'm excited to hear about uh, actual implementations of it. Okay, great. Our guest today is Arthur Brightman, who is the co-founder and early architect of Tezos. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Arthur, for folks who don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the world of software and technology. I'm French, which is part of why uh, I have this accent. You know, I I studied um, computer science in France. I I did some competitive programming. I was in the IOI. I moved to the US, uh, New York specifically in my early 20s. I work in quantitative finance, basically on uh, on high-frequency trading desks. But my background was mostly in machine learning and statistics. I also worked in robotics on the West Coast for uh, Waymo. I worked on left turns for self-driving cars. Those are tricky, even for real people. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like a left turn is not as easy as a right turn because you have incoming cars. <laughs> of course, now I live in the UK where it's the opposite. So the right turns are more difficult. But uh, yeah, so I and in parallel to all that, I, uh, I, I caught the, uh, the cryptocurrency and, and blockchain bug very early on. I got really interested in Bitcoin around 2011. And, you know, uh, one thing led to another, and I, and I found myself uh, building Tezos, which you know, started out as a small uh, hobby project and then, you know, became bigger and bigger over the years and, until right. it, it became one of the major uh, cryptocurrencies out there. So I guess, yeah, tell us a little bit about some of that early experience, and then we'll transition into blockchain technology and Tezos. The time you spent in quantitative finance, and I guess you were sort of like a, almost like a researcher on like a Google X and Waymo. What mode were you working in? Were you building machine learning models and high frequency trading algorithms? Just give us a little background on that so we can understand. In quantitative finance, it was a mix of things. There's a statistical aspect because all of the strategies that I was working on, almost everything I'm working on is, is data driven in the sense that you have to validate it around the data. In a way, um, machine learning doesn't work in finance. And I'll explain what I mean by that. We have two different words for almost the same thing, machine learning and statistics. And Jeffrey Hinton suggests a distinction. Uh, he says, well, na- because we have two words, we might as well use machine learning for problems where we have a lot of structure and very little noise. So a typical example is you look at a picture of a bird. There's a lot of structure, there's a lot of very complicated structure because the relationship between pixels of the image and the presence of a bird is non-trivial. However, there's very little noise because you can, in fact, with very, very high precision, if your algorithm is good enough, you can, in fact, tell whether or not there's a bird. 
Uh, in finance, it's the opposite. Everything is dominated by noise and you have very, very little structure because there's no hard relationship that's going to govern all these asset prices. There's just so many factors at play. So you have some statistical relationships. They're very, very weak. Both are statistics with the type of tool that you use for finding complex relationships is what you know, deep learning is great at. Um, you find this complex relationship, but in an environment where you don't have that much noise. Whereas in finance, you're all about dominating the noise and you end up with things like vision statistics, for example. So I came in, you know, uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in finance saying, I, all, I love all of this AI and neural net stuff and I'm going to uh, apply this to finance. Isn't this great? Because if you do uh, automated trading, you don't have to ever talk to a customer or a supplier or any of that. It's just you, the algorithm and the markets. And, uh, and unfortunately, <laughs> you know, with some notable exceptions, it, it, it's not necessarily a great, you're battling noise. So it is data-driven, but you also have to have strong hypothesis about what you're testing. Mm. You can't just go by purely the data. You have to have you have to start from a model, and that model might be: I believe that in time of credit crunches, people might be mispricing the difference between the seasonality of the price of oil. You know, you start with an hypothesis like this, then you build a model, and then you then you test your model. So it was a lot of that at first because I was doing surgical arbitrage. Then moved more into high frequency trading, where it's really about the dynamics of order books, like how do orders arrive in an exchange? How does they, how do orders get placed when you see a certain set of buy and sell orders? What does it mean? What does it reveal about the intent of market participants? So very different from self-driving cars. The, the nice thing, the other big difference <laughs> I would say is that in, in finance, everything is adversarial, right? You place an order and if you make a mistake, someone's going to try to take advantage of that mistake, especially because I was on the market making side. So the take side is people who look for the order books, they look for a mistake, and if they make a mis- they see mistake, they make a trade, they pay transaction costs, and maybe they make money, maybe they don't. On the market-making right. side, you're doing the opposite. You're always offering to buy and sell. So, you know, in general, you make money because you, you like people pay transaction fees to you, but if you make one mistake, you know, you're quoting thousands of names, you make one mistake in one place, bam, someone will take advantage. So it's very much like that in a world of blockchains where it's about security. So you need to have, you need to be good everywhere. And, you know, if you're the defender, you need to be good everywhere. If you're the attacker, you need to find like one flaw. So mm-hmm. it was a very adversarial environment. The, the thing I liked about sales learning car is that finally it was not adversarial in the sense that the cars on the road are not actually trying to ram into you. They will, they will at least try to avoid you. And, and there's a lot more structure. And so like all of a sudden AI works and, you know, you can start doing uh, neural networks and all that good stuff. And it actually uh, yields nice, neat results. I'm curious, uh, you got into blockchain really early. What caught your attention about it? What, what was interesting about it back then? It was at the intersection of a lot of my centers of interest. So first of all, you know, computer science is, of course, a very, very strong computer science component. To all of that, there's a lot of algorithms and data structures which are involved. Specifically, there's a cryptographic aspect. So, you know, cryptography is mm-hmm. part computer science, part mathematics. I also caught a lot of it. You know, I got a lot of interest in the uh, in the 90s when I was in high school in uh, uh, cryptography at, at a very low level. But, you know, I was saying like, wait a second, you can do cool stuff with number theory. That's fantastic. You know, like you can use prime numbers to encrypt things. How, how cool. So I had this interest in cryptography. I had read uh, uh, Bruce Schneier's book at the time, like, like many people. And I was like, oh, this is so cool. So, you know, cryptography, computer science, but also uh, theory of money and banking. Uh, I was really interested into, uh, into how banks work, how does money work. I, um, and particularly, I got... I got Quite into the history of free banking, and so like there was a whole monetary aspect to it. And of course, I think there's a political project around uh, around cryptocurrency, which is about individual sovereignty, which really aligned to uh, to my own inclinations. So 
basically at the intersection of a lot of things I was interested in. That makes a lot of sense. Do you remember specifically the first time I was working at the New York Observer covering the Silicon Alley tech scene and I was on Hacker News every day and there just started to be more and more threads about Bitcoin and Satoshi and the white paper. This was like 2010, 2011. That was the first I heard of it. Unfortunately, did not set up a, a mining rig early on as I should have. It's, a, it's an even sadder story because I know the guy who runs the, uh, the cryptography meeting list and we, we had a, a regular lunch on. So, you know, like hearing about it for the first time, super, super early, actually like paying attention much later, unfortunately. The second time I, I heard about it was from a, uh, a friend who sent me this and said, oh, it's cool. It's backed by electricity. And at the time I thought that doesn't make sense because the, the supply of electricity can change. It's not that it's not that scarce. It's not, you know, electricity would not make good money and it's, the price is different everywhere. And it's not backed by electricity, by the way. And if I had told me it's backed by nothing, I would have been way more excited. So again, I have a I had a draft in my Gmail folder. I think this year, like 2010 or early 2011, saying like, look into this Bitcoin thing. I tried to run a software on my machine. I was like, oh my god, it's taking all the resources. Uninstalled it. But like really paying attention, I think is like after the price of Bitcoin went over a dollar. When when people started actually using it, when people were talking about the Silk Road and you know like the, the thing was was growing, people were creating this. Uh, right. Like people were, people were selling like stocks for for, for Bitcoin of miners. There was this whole uh, environment. I was like, okay, this is more than just you know a theoretical project. There's actually some traction here. Did you dabble in blockchain early on? like before Tezos and had some experiences there that kind of led you to create it the way you did? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I, I tried to think about projects I would launch with Bitcoin. Like what, what could I do with Bitcoin? But they were not blockchain projects. They were more, I would say, traditional companies. And like, how do you have a company that benefits from uh, from Bitcoin? And my idea was that if you don't have to maintain banking relationship, it makes some business, you know, you, you can have some offshore businesses like or more efficiently. And, you know, I was thinking of things like, oh, could we do, uh, by no means am I the only person who thought about this, right? But, uh, you know, could you do decentralized poker with mental poker, for example, or, you know, this, this type of applications running with Bitcoin prediction markets. I also thought of like, hey, you could run a in-trade like websites that take its deposits in, uh, in Bitcoin, like a few projects like that, but not really the, the actual core technology. When you got started, what was the uh, the blockchain ecosystem like? It was very small, right? It was it was Bitcoin, and then you know, Namecoin, uh, Litecoin, Peercoin came a little bit later. So these were the names that I was looking at, paying attention to. NXT a little bit after that. And so, when did you decide to create Tezos? What was sort of the you know moment of inspiration or the moment of frustration that led you there? And yeah, having you know been in the space and tried a few different things. Foundationally, if you describe yourself, yeah, as sort of like a co-founder and chief architect, what were the early architectural decisions you were trying to make, you know, and what, what was behind those? I got I got really interested in uh, blockchain technology itself, like the core blockchain technology. How does it work? I, you know, I found forums where people were discussing alternative designs, for example. I got interested into the early design of, of Ripple. You know, Ripple Network today is very, very different from what it was doing at the beginning, which I think was like lines of credit and uh, maintaining a graph of lines of credit, which I saw around social networks, which was super, super interesting. They've moved completely away from that, but that was a really interesting design. So thinking through these different designs, thinking through consensus, I got interested into these ideas around, you know, first of all, how do we avoid cost of mining? Can we do something without mining? So proof of stake, of course, was one of the uh, topics I started reading about. Uh, another question was privacy. Everything was very visible. On the Bitcoin network, could we do something where transactions would actually stay private? And there was research in this area with uh, the zero coin paper and the zero cash paper. So these different topics were very interesting to me. But I was always in the perspective that 
you know, this would end up being part of Bitcoin, that Bitcoin, like any software project, was meant to grow and evolve. I remember a conversation I had very early, again, 2011. I was in, visiting London. I had a few hours to kill. I go into a hackerspace. I meet this guy and, you know, he starts talking to me about Bitcoin. I was like, oh, cool. I'm interested in Bitcoin too. And I say, well, what, you know, what about the algorithm? Like, surely something better can come along. And he says, well, yes, but Bitcoin is not an algorithm. It's not a piece of code. Bitcoin is a ledger. It's a set of people that agree that these are the entries in a ledger. And if something better can come along, you can keep the ledger and change the underlying algorithm. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, thank God. That, that's great. That's, that's what I needed to hear. And then gradually I see a lot of good ideas and I, and, and I see a lot of reluctance among influential people in the, in the Bitcoin world in terms of actually um, implementing those. And I understand part of the reluctance because it's like, if we decide really nearly to do some of this integration, you know, who decides what we, what the integrate, what's the governance procedure for, for deciding that? And I think one of the choices that was made in some sense a little collectively among the Bitcoin community early on is that the governance model was to have basically almost no changes. But what's sad is I saw a lot of the narrative change. You know, Bitcoin started out with a narrative that Bitcoin was going to absorb the best ideas from all of the competing altcoins. And then it moved on to the narrative that none of these ideas were good and that they all hurt <laughs> the security of the network. And, and, and then it moved on to the narrative that all these international ideas were scams and that, you know, the people who created them should be punished. So that, that was very, very, that was a very, very sad. Uh, the stages of acceptance and stages, denial. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah right. exactly. So, but it, but it did lead me to think, it's like, okay, so you want to be decentralized. You want to be upgraded. How can you marry both? How can you be upgradable while still staying decentralized? And the general answer to that has been forking. And forking is a governance procedure that, that predates cryptocurrencies. That's general governance procedures of all open source projects. Right. When you have... People disagree on uh, on the direction of the projects. I'm like, fine, you know what? We can we both have licenses to this code base, so we'll just uh, each develop our own branch, and then users can choose whatever they want to use, and that can work fine. The issue here is that again, Bitcoin or or, or any other cryptocurrency is not just a technology; it's a ledger. And while you can fork the code base, you can't really fork the ledger. You can have two copies of it, but one is going to mostly have value, and the other one won't. And what determines what has value or doesn't have value is not necessarily what people prefer. It's based on social expectations. Like what has value is what you expect other people to deem valuable. And that, and, and that can be based on very, very weird dynamics. So I, I thought what we need is a, is a way to basically set up a canonical branch, like set, you know, what, we may have some forks, we may have different version, but this is the canonical branch, the one that's the real ledger. And yeah, that led to a fairly simple governance procedure, but the idea of having the upgrade happen on the chain itself as opposed to happen through, uh, through forks. You created uh, not only the, the separate code base, but a separate ledger. Is that right? I mean, so, um, you know, Tezos is its own ledger, right? Because I don't, I don't have the, uh, it's not like I had the cloud or anyone had the cloud to go and say like, hey, you know what? Let's change Bitcoin to add all this, uh, all these features. So I just start from scratch. And it was also, you know, so part of it was a self, the, what they call the self-amending aspect. But beyond that, it was also an opportunity to incorporate some of these ideas, which had been developed and had been researched at the time, which, which were really cool, but which seemed to have no traction at all in Bitcoin, which were proof of stake, privacy, and smart contracts. So let's talk a little bit about sort of the foundational tech stack and how you got this off the ground. Was it just you, you and a few other people? How did you decide on, you know, sort of the approach in terms of language and creating your own blockchain? Talk us through that origin story. Initially, when I um, started working on it, my general thinking was like, this is a fun project. I'm going to learn a lot. This is cool. And I've had a lot of side projects over the year, right? So this was another one of my side projects. 
And I wanted to do something a little different because I said, look, I, I don't want to just, you know, this to just be something I'm going to hack on and it's just going to stay permanently in an unfinished state. I want this to actually, ever, you know, at some point be released so that I can point and say, like, I did that. And I was, you know, that, that, that was the main goal. I went, the main goal was to build something cool. But I, I said, look, if, I, if it's just me, you know, having a full-time job, I'm just not going to be able to just, like, ship something of that of that size. So I knew I, I had to, uh, to work with other programmers. At first, I reached out to a bunch of friends, and I said, hey, do you want to help me build this? Didn't have a whole lot of uh, traction there. They were like, oh, it sounds interesting. I don't have too much time. And I was like, all right, you know what? I have some savings. I'm going to pay some people to, uh, to, to help me uh, get this off the ground. And I found this, I, I, uh, this team in France, uh, street programmers, very, very strong. They were OCaml programmers, and I already knew that I was very interested in, in, in doing this in OCaml for a variety of reasons. So OCaml is a functional programming language. It's very popular in French academia. It's not been super popular outside of that, but it has some major... So one of the major use of uh, OCaml has been compilers. Most compilers are still built in OCaml. It's found some uses. Um, Jane Street Capital, big uh, hedge fund, is a big user, but you'll also find it in places like Docker or in places like Facebook, for example. When uh, when Facebook decided that it could not go back into uh, having a gigantic PHP code base, it decided to morph PHP into hack, and then they needed a compiler. And for that, they needed a compiler team. And for that, they needed a camel people. So there's a bunch of camel people at, um, at Facebook uh, as well. But the nice thing about a camel is that you can write functional code, static, very, very strongly typed. And when you are on a budget and you are writing code where security is going to be very critical, being able to have a high confidence that your code is going to be correct and it's not going to have bugs is quite important. And I feel that by doing this on camel, I was getting that. So in terms of like guaranteeing on a smaller budget to have something that's reliable, it's a very, very strong choice. And the other thing is that you know, few people use this, but the performance of compiler camel code is extremely good. If you compare it to Haskell, which is an even more purest language from a functional programming standpoint with a lazy evaluation and all, the thing is like if you want to write performant Haskell, you're not going to write really idiomatic Haskell, whereas idiomatic camel is going to be very, very performant. So that led to the choice of a camel. And even within a camel, we use a functional subset of a camel for the protocol. So I, I, knew, I knew a good team. I knew it was a good language for that. The other thing is that there's always a cost in using a more obscure programming language. And the cost is that it's higher to hire, to hire programmers, right? But if you're building a code base where you need thousands and thousands of people, you need, if you need to hire thousands and thousands of people to work on your code base, that's going to be an issue. But that's not what you see for core development. If you look, if I look, I looked at the size of core development teams around top projects, and it was quite small. You know, even today, when it's a very, very big project, you know, there's there are dozens and do- of core developers, but we're still talking about dozens. So you're not in a position of like, you know, when Google adopts a language, they want to know that they're going to be able to hire people by the thousands and thousands to use that language. For a camel, not so. So it's OCaml in the, in, in the internals, but every outside interface, you can use JavaScript, you can use whatever you want. So for broad adoption, it can be any language, but in the inside, it works. I was also inspired by what I heard about WhatsApp, which had been built by a very small team of senior um, parallel engineers. And it was like, hey, that's a good success story. So those were part of the uh, reason. I also did with Rust, which would have been a great choice, but Rust was very, very um, new at the time. You know, it was hard to tell it would have the traction it has now and it didn't have the maturity of the, uh, of the tooling. I was interested in the uh, the sort of functional programming aspect of this. What's the the benefit to having a blockchain run on uh, functional programming? Is it uh, kind of the the deterministic code or something else? I mean, at the end of the day, it's all going to be assembly, right? Running on CPU. So it's I would say the benefit of the functional code is in uh, in the development process and in how easy it is to convince yourself that your code is uh, is correct. 
I think it's, it's easier to do that when you uh, can rely heavily on a type system or when you can uh, rely heavily on a lack of side effects. You can write mm-hmm. a pure function and you're like, okay, you know, if I have a pure function and I have good unit tests for my function, or even, you know, better, like some form of proof that a function is, uh, is correct, then I don't have to worry about this function suddenly affecting user balances. When you review code, you know, it's like very, very strong encapsulation you get out of uh, like a side effects or out of the type system is extremely, uh, is extremely valuable in terms of like saving yourself uh, review time. So it, it's just a more efficient way, I would say, to, uh, to develop secure code than it would be with other languages. But it, it's possible. You, know, you could write Tezos in Java if you wanted to. I believe it would have taken longer and, uh, and would have required a higher budget. Do you use the ledger itself to kind of store state more often? The way you can think of a blockchain essentially is um, think of a blockchain like you would think of, of a scan function. Uh, in a sense, if you have the blocks, the block in operation, you maintain a state, and the state is just basically uh, the fold of all your blocks over a uh, over an accumulator, which is your state. So the state is represented on the, on a disk as a, uh, as a as a big Merkle tree, which is a tree where all the intermediary nodes are, are hashed for integrity purposes. It tracks ahead of your chain, and that's and that's your head state. There's another benefit, by the way, which is less direct, but a lot of the stuff you have to do for a blockchain looks like the type of problem that people in the functional programming world are interested in. For instance, I mentioned that you have a state that evolves with a chain. Your chain can reorganize, right? So if you have a change in consensus, sometimes some blocks are undone and you, and you, and you need to get new um, and you need to change your state. So for this, you need to be able to roll back. In order to roll back, it's very advantageous if your state is represented you know, in a functional manner a tree, because you, you modify your tree in a functional manner, um, you can do rollbacks fairly uh, efficiently. Same principle as you know, if you were using Git, for example, it's very efficient to do rollbacks because mm-hmm. it gives this history. So all, of a, so all of a sudden now, as your chain progresses, you need to do garbage collection on that. And so you end up having to implement a garbage collector. That's you know, a type of thing we're more familiar with in the, uh, in the functional world. Because essentially, blockchain is independent in data structure. So this, you know, again, you're talking about functional concepts. If you're building a... Uh, a blockchain with smart contracts, you're going to need a, a smart contract language. And so now mm. you're building a compiler language. So, so there's a lot of um, natural concepts which kind of map really well to uh, the programming language world. To me, you know, as someone who's, who's not as advanced in, in programming concepts, it feels like what you're saying is that in terms of its structure, its approach to things, almost its philosophy, there's a lot of similarities between some of the elements that interested you from the cryptographic side and the blockchain side and functional programming. And marrying the two of them, you felt gave you some additional strengths and versatility that you wouldn't have if you didn't. The thing is, like, I wasn't myself big into functional programming because a lot of what I was doing, I, I, I believe in the right to the right job, right? And a lot of what I've been doing, you know, whether it's machine learning or whether it's scientific computing, I mean, people do scientific computing in functional programming. I don't think there's a tremendous advantage in, 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 in using functional languages for for this type of task. And so, you know, I wasn't really using functional programming language for a lot of what I was doing, but I felt that, hey, if what you're doing is security first, performance second, and if it's really about, because the magic of a blockchain is you want to maintain a state, right? You want to maintain a global state that's going to be a singleton mm-hmm. and that's going to be mutable and concurrently accessible by many people. That does not work well if you just try to do imperative mutation. So, you know, in some sense, the blockchain is a functional data structure, right? It's uh, when people say right. the blockchain is immutable, that is really what it means. It's like it, it's an immutable data structure, but you're trying to represent mutations through it. If you're representing state in some objects externally, it's going to have some complications, right? Yeah. So I, I think it's just um, in terms of language and 
problem. It's just like a very, very good uh, impedance match between functional programming and blockchains. Yeah, it's really fascinating to hear you talk about sort of the interesting match that can be made between functional programming and blockchain. So what year did Tezos really get rolling? And, and over the last few years since it was created, like what has been built on it? You know, when people look at the ecosystem now, what do you want them to see? First ideas on paper for Tezos are 2014. Um, but then it was kind of, you know, the papers came out, some codes started being write, written, but it was quite obscure until 2016, where it started being rediscovered. And it got rediscovered because of two events. One was the um, the fork of Ethereum around the DAO. So the DAO hack, which I think shed some light on the importance of verification of smart contract code. The other one was the, the fork and the governance issues around the fork. The block size wars around Bitcoin as well, because the, the Tezos position <laughs> paper talks about the fact that, hey, there can be core development teams can be quite influential and powerful in, in setting governance. And you need to think about like who holds this type of power, especially if you decide on, on I'm, I'm laughing because I remember trying to cover the block size wars at The Verge and being pretty lost, pretty out of my depth. But also, yeah, it was all about the hard fork and two sides that were totally intransigent against one another and really heated you know, rhetoric online and doxing of people and just you know, such a, a battle to decide whether or not, you know, it would go from whatever it was, two to four, you know, so that they could speed up the chain and make it, you know, evolve with the demands that were being placed on the ecosystem. What, what I found interesting in the blocks as well is that so much was about, so much of the, the debate was about legitimacy. And people were saying like, larger blocks was Satoshi intended and with a bunch of questions. Not true to the vision, right, exactly. And someone <laughs> said, no, 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 smaller blocks is what Satoshi intended. And, you know, on, on the one hand, you might say like, well, why, why does it matter? Not even an argument from authority. People wanted to say like, look, that branch is going to be the legitimate one. It's about legitimacy because in a fork, what determines a winner is the one which is not the best one. It's the one which is perceived to be most legitimate, which is a different concept. So it, it started getting a lot of attention in 2016. So at, at that point, you know, I was at Waymo and I was like, well, this is nice. Let's really launch this thing. But again, it, it, it was getting attention, but it was not, it, it was not something major. I, again, I wanted, I wanted a nice calling card to say like this thing exists. But at this point, I saw like, okay, you know, maybe I also like, maybe I built something valuable as well. Mostly what happened between 2018, 2020 is that the teams that were working on a protocol uh, started growing a lot. The tooling ecosystem, whereas it's like libraries, developer tools, all of that started growing. But it really started picking up the pace, I would say, in the second half of 2020 and massively, uh, massively increased in 2021. Well, you, you mentioned you were kind of a beneficiary of, of hype a little bit. What do you think about the overall hype? about crypto blockchain right now? Do you think it's helpful, harmful? Yeah, <laughs> it's always helpful when it's on your side, right? So I think, you know, right. having, a bunch of, having a bunch of hype, of course, is broadly helpful to the space. I think it comes with some downsides, but, you know, overall, I think it's better to have hype than not have it. The right. downside, of course, is that the hype can blind people to what's important. And the, the, the problem with the hype is that everyone tries to start chasing it. And all of a sudden, if you, if you have like, well, my competitors are being really, really hyped. So I need to follow whatever the hype is dictating. Otherwise, I'm going to be left behind. And it means that everyone starts doing the same thing as opposed to actually trying to uh, follow their path and innovate. So in a way, it's helpful because you can't say it's not helpful to have billions of dollars of venture capital invested in the space. And a lot of that is hype-driven, and that is ultimately helpful. But it does come with a cost, and the cost, I think, is that um, it hurts innovation. Yeah, I think I understand what you're saying. You know, the corollary to that would be when corporations that don't really have any interest or experience in the blockchain are creating NFTs, you know, and people are buying and selling them, 
you know, yeah, as you said, it creates kind of a backlash where some people say, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to hear any more about this space or mm-hmm. this is all, you know, this space is all just a big kind of like pump and dump. So people who might legitimately be interested from a technical perspective or want to, you know, could be useful in terms of the skills they can bring are turned off, you know, by some of that. I would say that's a distinct problem from the hype, but it is a real problem that you, uh, that you raise. It's like, I, was, I suppose it comes from the hype. So the hype attracts a lot of uh, a lot of people who profit from the hype, and then you know, like, don't care about their reputation. But then it hurts the reputation of the entire space. Yeah, it creates a lot of uh, expectations from the space as a whole. I mean, I, I call it peeing in a pool. <laughs> you bring it for yeah. everyone else. So I guess talk to us a little bit about what you're excited about right now. Things that you see happening on Tezos, or for folks who are working directly with you, or as partners. And then tell us a little bit about, you know, what you would want to see over the next year or so, you know, is stuff on the roadmap that you think people could get interested in? Sure. So, you know, I'm an engineer at heart. So the things that excite me the most are the technical developments, but there's more things to be excited about. But I'll start with that because it's, it's what I would say is dearest to me. A lot of progress on the scaling of Tezos. I mentioned early on that, you know, there were like several components that I wanted to see on Tezos early on, privacy you know, smart contracts, proof of stake, we, you know, we got all this, but being able to scale is not something that I focused on early on. I look at what was uh, out there and, and, and there was nothing convincing in terms of, uh, of scaling solutions. I wrote a, a very popular blog post back in 2017 called Scaling Tezos. And in that blog post, I talk about the sharding strategy, which was being proposed by Ethereum. And I said, look, to me, it didn't make sense. It wasn't cogent. It didn't work. It was extremely complex. And I put in out a strategy based on zero-knowledge proof. Now, that strategy right now is extremely popular. It's a base of a company called Starkware, but also of uh, a set of ZK rollup, whether we're talking about Aztec or ZK Sync. It's one of the hottest things. I get zero credit for it. I mean, you know, you know I, if you ask Eli Bintasson, who started uh, Starkware, he will say that, you know, he was very, uh, very interested by this blog post when I said, look, zero-knowledge proofs are not just for, for privacy, they're for scaling. Anyway, so I, that was that was my focus, but the problem is that they were very much too slow to uh, to produce, and I and I still think to this day they've gotten far more far more practical than they are. But I do I, I do think that ZK Rollup solutions quite quite interesting for for scaling are still inadequate. However, there's been other solutions being developed in terms of layer two, and there's been newer solutions developed in terms of data availability. And I think finally the elements are together to actually scale. Um, so that's a big part of the uh, the roadmap that I'm trying to push for the uh, for the Tezos ecosystem and for the uh, Tezos core protocol. And in the same way that you know, when you talk about people of proof of stake versus proof of work, and you say like, oh, consume this energy, and they say like, oh, how much less? You know, is it thirty percent less, sixty percent less? And you're like, well, no, it's still a million times less. And you get a <laughs> form of incredulity. And the reason for it is because they assume that somehow you kind of like optimized it, you know, like you, you went through a series of optimization and through a careful optimization you got there, but you're not using optimization, you're just using something completely different, right? You're just right. using a different technique. And in the same way, I think, you know, with the right scaling technique, you can get to um, from throughputs, which are currently, I think for Tezos on the order of 200 transactions per second, you can move to millions of transactions per second. But again, you know, the way you move from 200 to a million or more is not by making somehow, you know, your like, you're not going to optimize your signature verification code or like move to like multi-core. None of that is going to get you there. You just use a different technique, right? With different trade-offs. And so basically deploying those techniques primarily based on data availability sharding, which is a way where not everyone downloads all of the uh, information from the blocks and optimistic rollup, which are a little similar to those, you know, zero knowledge proofs that I discussed earlier, but instead of relying on cryptography to prove that something is correct, 
be relying on some economic games where someone has to challenge it if it's incorrect. So the combination of that, I think, is super exciting in terms of uh, being able to scale the protocol. That's on the protocol side. On the type of on, on the application side, I'm quite interested in DeFi from my, my background. You know, I, I, I think it's always been a great uh, use case for blockchains. It's not been the focus on Tezos in terms of like what people have used it for. Uh, we're biggest right now in, uh, in in actually digital art. That's uh, probably the biggest uh, user of Tezos transaction today. Though we do have some DeFi primitives. There's really two DeFi's when I look at it today. A lot of it is honestly nonsense. It's it's just a very very circular thing where people like creates elaborate gambling games by just having, you know, this elaborate trading games. It's a form of entertainment. In a you know, best case scenario, it's a form of entertainment. Worst case scenario, people imagine that they're investing in finance and they're not really doing that. And, and in general, a lot of that is very unsophisticated. And then you have a breed of DeFi, which is extremely sophisticated and, and very, very deep, which comes from a lot of people with a quantitative finance background. There's been quantitative finance innovation that have come from the DeFi space like the invention of perpetuals, for example. And that is, I think, you know, there's a breeding ground for inventing, for doing some like creative financial engineering, which are, which is fantastic. So seeing some of that develop on uh, develop more on Tezos, we, we're starting to see the beginning of that. Some teams deploying some more uh, advanced protocol. That's really something that I'm looking forward to. In terms of uh, broad adoption, I will say that in general, just following the trend of more people using Tezos has been great. You know, we were... A really cool blockchain with good technology for a couple of years. And then starting in 2021, on top of that, we started getting heavily used. So I measure that by looking at the amount of smart contract calls per month. You can look at transactions, but transactions are imperfect because a lot of it could just reflect people you know, transferring to exchanges or from exchanges. So some of that can reflect purely um, trading activity. But the nice thing with smart contract calls is that these are people who hold their own token, they don't hold their token with an exchange, they have their own wallets, and they are interacting with an application. So for me, that's a, that's a really good indicator of, uh, of traction. And we've had an exponential rise uh, throughout 2021 uh, and continuing in 2022 in a uh, in number of smart contract calls per month. A lot of that has been driven by our use cases, but also some, uh, some, some DeFi use cases. So broadly speaking, with more usage come a lot of benefits in the sense that you have more people looking at the ecosystem. You have people actually you know, banging on the tools, it's a lot easier to build tools when you have users giving you feedback and say, your tool doesn't work because it doesn't do that. Telling issues or, you know, asking for features as opposed to try to build in the abstract and think like, well, here's what people might want. So that's a really, really good forcing function on the technology and have that. And, you know, mm. this fact, the, the reason why we're thinking so much about scaling is because of this demand, you know, like all of a sudden, like, well, I hang on a second. Like, we need to be able to accommodate that because it keeps growing. And we've been able to grow actually the, the throughput of the chain with traditional optimization techniques. We've gone almost by 10x the amount of transaction we can do just by optimizing bits and, uh, and pieces of the code. But if we want to go beyond that, that creates new, uh, new designs. All right, everybody, it is that time of the show. I'm going to shout out the winner of a badge. We're all out of lifeboats, so get cracking on that, folks who are listening. But we do have an altruist badge awarded. It's the first bounty you manually award to, on another person's question. So giving out some reputation for folks who helped how to store function logic in a database awarded to All Luck Based on March 11th. Thanks, All Luck Based, for coming on Stack Overflow helping to spread some knowledge. I am Ben Popper. I am the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter 
at Ben Popper. You can always email us, podcast at Stack Overflow, with questions or suggestions. And if you like the show, you can leave a rating or a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. And if you have a great idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com. Arthur, tell the folks who you are, where they can find you online. And yeah, if they want to learn more about Tezos, where should they go? My name is uh, Arthur Braitman. I'm a co-founder and early architect of Tezos. If you want to find me online, you can best follow me on Twitter at Arthur B. And if you want to learn about Tezos online, you can go to uh, tezos.com, T-E-Z-O-S.com. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. And we will talk to you soon.